You're about to listen to another inspiring word from House on the Rock Church, the London Lighthouse. For more information and interaction with House on the Rock, please visit our website on hotr.org.uk. Hebrews 11 and verse 6. And when you find Hebrews 11 verse 6, put a bookmark there and go with me to Ecclesiastes 9 verse 11. And when you find Ecclesiastes 9 11, uh, put another bookmark there and come with me to John 2 verse 19 and 21. And I'm really aiming at verse 19. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and will you rear it up or raise it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Emphasis, destroy this temple, Jesus said, and in three days I will raise it up. I will build it again. Ecclesiastes 9 and 11. Because of time, I'll only read verse 11, but verse 10 and 12 are proper context. Verse 11, Solomon, who had gone astray for a while, he comes back into faith and into obedience to the Lord, and he says, I returned, and I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding. Somebody shout favor. Nor yet favor to men of skill. So you don't have to be swift to win the ways. You don't have to be strong to win the battle. You don't have to be uh, uh, wise to eat bread. And you don't have to uh, be a person of understanding to enter into riches. Uh, nor do you have to be a person of skill to be favored by God. But when you're favored, you'll win. So he says, nor yet favor goes to men of skill. But what happens is this, time. Hebrew word that's spelled E-T-H, eth, uh, but I pronounce it et. Uh, time and chance, a Hebrew word spelled paga, which means opportunity, opportunity. And uh, um, chance, time and chance, that's opportunity, happeneth to them all. That word happeneth is the word kara, which means occurrence. Help me and tell somebody something is about to happen in your life today. And to close our readings for the opening text, Hebrews 11 and verse 6. Hebrews 11 verse 6. I'll tie them together in a moment. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. The him there is God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Uh, the term must believe that he is is actually must believe that he is the I am. We saw that the last time we talked. 
And it's an important theme because the term I am prefaces all of God's significant covenant names. Meaning that he is your God. He is the I am. Whatever you need him to be, as a matter of his provisional covenant, he is that. And my thought this morning is simply taken from our opening text. In three days. And what I mean to tell you by this is that inside three days, something is going to happen in your life. If you have faith, I believe that your life can change so much that you'll never be able to go back to who you used to be before. In other words, you will make it to your next level. And there are six identifiable levels that I propose as, as thematics for my subject with you this morning. And one of them is scarcity. And if you've had scarcity in your life today of things material and immaterial, you are going to leave that level. You're going to leave it. And you will move to the, at least the next level, which is survival, where you are surviving. There's some vivor in you. Hallelujah. But survival is not your end game. It's not your destination. It's a passing through. And from survival, you can go to what we call sustainability. In other words, you're not going to lose what you have. You're going to keep it as a platform for what else God will do in your life. Please give me a witness, somebody. And uh, uh, sustainability is not, is not uh, uh, uncommon wealth. It's not uncommon opportunity. It's not uncommon ability. It's not uncommon provision. It's still beneath the privilege of the saints. Hallelujah to God. There's another level. Help me tell somebody there's another level. And uh, the next level after sustainability is called success. Success. And there's a term that God uses in the Chronicles writ as it concerns uh, Joshua uh, that is called good success. That's a success that when it comes, it also comes with peace. It doesn't cause a curse to come in your life. That means there has to be a process of development in your personality and in your character so that what God intended to bless you with, you are ready for it so that it doesn't become a curse to you. If God gave some of us $20 million right now, it would be a curse because you're not ready for it. Hallelujah. That's why you have to go through the pit, endure the hatred of your brethren, uh, end up in chains that incarcerate you to your purpose, lock you up in a place for training where you learn general management called Potiphar's house and then by false accusation, misrepresentation, you endure, in fact you enjoy persecution so you end up in further incarceration, oh my god I feel it already you enjoy further incarceration but that prison was the highest communication of connectivity for Joseph because the last destiny helper that he was going to meet was not met in the palace, he was met in the prison and by now, Joseph is near the conclusion of his process to make him ready for the greatest stewardship ever up until that time in the whole wide world. He will become the most uh, influential personality in all of the world. With that, I introduce to you the thought this morning in three days. I don't mean inside 72 hours. I hope that some of you are completely transformed inside 72 hours. But please understand this. The first three days of creation were not 24-hour periods. 24-hour periods came afterwards. With that in mind, let's pray inside three days. Father, 
Let there be light in this house on another level today. That the precept built and established last time we were here will lead to a concept, a conceptualization, a conception in the heart of man of the greatness that beholds him and that he beholds. So that because she sees it, he sees it, they can now grasp it. Not groping in the darkness, but walking boldly in the light to what destiny had predestined before the foundation of time. Help the speaker to speak as he hears the hidden man of the heart. That every man and woman under the sound of this voice will be loosed from shackles, from limitations, from a sense of impossibility. And will begin to see that because Jesus lives and Christ is down deep inside of them, not only can they face tomorrow, they can thrive in today and be promoted to tomorrow's highest possibilities. Do this for everyone and let everyone here specifically, like a tailor-made suit, to the specificities of their particular need and destiny. I pray knowing you've done it already in Jesus' name. And the people of God said a very big amen. You may be seated in God's wonderful presence. Our God is. He's not a figment of the imagination. He's not someone or something that you hope will be. He's not an abstraction. He's the greatest reality of all time and eternity. In fact, uh, before we got to begin to grapple with the reality of God, he has always been there. He was there before there was a where or a when, before there was a me or you, before there was a day, a week, a month, a minute or a second, before there was a planet in the skies, before there was a day, a clock to measure time, he is God. Before there was an atom, a proton, or a neutron, before was the existence of anything, God is before all of that. So he never, in the mind of a believer, should be an accident of contemplation. He must always be your greatest reality. And that means he's going to take some um, requirements from you, including uh, your meditation on the fact that he is because your five senses are daily uh, every day every moment being bombarded with the contrary that wants to suggest to you that God does not exist but his name is existence and it is true he does not exist he is existence which means he's greater than existing Hallelujah. That means you can never and should never come to the place where you decide that God is not. Uh, because not only is he, he is many things to you. He is many things to everybody. He is many things to me. Hallelujah to God. Uh, one writer said that he is a way maker. Another one said he's a water walker. Somebody said he's a miracle worker. Somebody said he's a heavy load bearer and a heavy burden chair. Somebody said He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I say that he is my very best friend and in spite of all he knows about me, he still loves me. In spite of all he is to me, 
There's nothing I can do to make him love me less or love me more. I cannot perform to the point where he'll love me more than he presently does right now because his love towards me is completely zenith. It cannot be improved upon. That means you are the subject of God's love. This God is amazing and he is also what we call omnicompetent. That means in any of his capacities or abilities, he is total zenith. Zenith is impossible for you and I to contemplate because zenith in his context refers to infinity. That means he is infinitesimally beyond all you could ever in your finite mind contemplate him to be and much more than that. That means God cannot be improved upon. He cannot get better but even though you see him today as a fire burning in a bush, next time he might reveal to you more scale of the size of the fire that he is. But if you were to take a tape measure or metrics of some kind and try to measure the size of God, God's fire, you would never be able to measure it completely. He's told or he, we are told about him that he is past finding out. That means you can never completely survey God. There's always more of him to discover, to discern, to experience and to enjoy. That means God can never finish with you. Hallelujah to God. That means you can never fully exhaust him. He is inexhaustible. And that means, my friends, uh, that he cannot be divided, nor can he be subtracted from, uh, nor can he be added to, because if you take 50 million, zillion, billion, trillions, quintillions from him, uh, he still has more. That means if you try to divide him, you cannot, uh, because he is indivisible. Whether you try to divide him into a trinity or into a zillionty, he is indivisible. He still is God. That's why the writer said, Behold, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. Yes, he has three different dispensational personalities or characters, but he is still essentially, properly and totally one. The way that I would describe that is that to the scientist, water is H2O. Two molecules of hydrogen bonded to one molecule of oxygen. Hallelujah. But if you freeze the water... Uh, and it becomes ice block, you could break somebody's head with it, and you ask a scientist to tell you what it is, he will tell you that it is still two molecules of hydrogen bonded to one molecule of oxygen, H2O. And if you leave it, it becomes water. But to the scientist, it's still H2O. If you boil it, it becomes steam. But to the scientist, it is still H2O. Essentially, whether he's the Father in creation or the Son in redemption or the Holy Spirit in regeneration, he is still God. Who is this God? Shout at somebody and tell him he is he is. He is omnicompetent. The first omnipotential that he has or omnicapacity that he has that I want to look at with you briefly this morning is that he is omnipotent. That means there isn't anything that is too hard for God. He had promised Abraham, standing far flung into Abraham's future, 25 years earlier, that Abraham, you are going to have a child from your barren wife. You can have children, and that's why you had one with Hagar, but you're going to have a child with your barren wife. Hallelujah to God. And Abraham said, all right, uh, prove to me that it's going to happen. And years pass, and God has to keep renewing his promise to him because it looks like it's not going to happen. One year passes, five years pass, ten years pass, nothing happens. But God says to him, I'm not a man that I should lie, nor the son of man that I should relent. If I said it, I'm going to make it good. If I spoke it, I will bring it to pass. Everything else may pass away, but my word that is settled in heaven is going to settle your life with the child you are looking for. 
for. Hear me, somebody, am I talking to you yet? Because when he tells you something prophetically, he's not announcing something he's hoping will happen if you are compliant. He will comply you. He's announcing to you something that has already happened in a future time that you have not yet experienced. So if you could glance at the future or temporarily step into the future, you will find a ballet. You calm down to understand that it has already happened in my future and faith really is going into the future at least mentally uh, to experience tomorrow so that you can endure the nastiness of the now and now. And one year to the birth of the child, God shows up in Abraham's house or Abraham's tent. And he says, by this time, that's the word et, next year, Sarah, your wife, is going to bear you a child. Sarah heard it and she started laughing, almost as a scoffer. He said, why is your wife laughing? And God told him, is anything too hard for God? He was saying, I am omnipotent, in other words. Is there anything I cannot do? Just because he doesn't do it doesn't mean he cannot do it. And just because there seems to be no way, remember he is the way maker, he will make a way. He will find a way. In fact, he is the way. And so, interestingly, the word, by this time next year, that word time is the word et. And it is time to be perceived as an opportunity. What I'm proposing to you this morning is that opportunities are going to happen to you whether you like it or not. Because God will always provide ways and means for you to come up into his promises and his purposes for your life. Why he created you. Hear me somebody, I'm going somewhere. And so now, if you wait till the opportunity comes to get ready, you will not be ready when the opportunity comes. But because you know that opportunities will come, you better start getting ready now. Because your getting ready is a sign of faith towards God that you know that he's somehow someday soon enough going to make an opportunity available to you that if you seize it and snatch it you're going to get to where he's taking you in life's purpose life's calling and life's plenty because you're going to need plenty of everything he has to give you to make it through the seasons that challenge and test your faith am I talking to somebody yet if that's you I'm talking to look for two persons and tell them I don't know about you but I am going to get there. I'm going to get there. The Bible says that they that wait upon the Lord, they shall renew their strength. That does not mean that waiting on God renews your strength because, baby, you are going to have to wait anyways. Until God is ready, because you are ready, he ain't going to do it. And if God is not going to be ready, uh, you are not going to be ready until everything is properly in alignment in Potiphar's house, in the palace, in the agriculture, in the climate, in the circumstances in the world, and in your personal readiness for what God has in store for you. And when everything is aligned, then you must recognize that you have been getting yourself ready. That means your job is whilst you are waiting, not to think that waiting is going to renew your strength. You have to renew your strength. 
That means renew your vigor, renew your faith, renew your word level, renew your audacity, renew your courage, keep it alive, hallelujah, because you're going to need it when the door opens and it will open for a moment, however long that moment is, I don't know, uh, but you must seize it in the moment and it will close again. If you miss the moment, you may have to wait 10 years, you may have to wait one year and you might be a bitter person by then, you might be a troubled person by then, you might be a weaker person by then, so you must seize the moment in the moment. One person said, uh, opportunities of a lifetime must be seized in the lifetime of the opportunity. So God says to Abraham, by this time next year, your wife is going to have the baby. I don't know who you are, but I do know that you're in this room. There's something that's going to happen to you. Mark today down. By this exact date next year, you are going to bring to birth something that you will conceive today. Something that because of today's message you are going to conceive in your heart and by this time next year it is going to be alive. God is already talking to you about greatness and you're trying to figure out how. How will I get there? How will this thing happen? I do not know a man when it was proposed to Mary that you are going to birth the humanity of God. She said, how will this thing be? I have no intercourse with any man. And the angel said to her, God himself will conceive himself inside you so that the birth of your child will not be his origin because what you are about to birth is not God you're just about to birth his humanity from your humanity that means Mary you have the unique opportunity of carrying God but you didn't originate him he is the originator that while you were carrying him he was carrying you whilst you were giving him milk he was the one supplying you the milk whilst you were trying to give him life he was the one who gave you life he upholds all things including you Mary by the word of his power are you here he is almighty. He is omnipotent. He can do anything. Anything. And don't worry about the how. The how is that he is the omnipotent. That means he can do it. Because he is God. All by himself. And just as he said it, Sarah had the child. But we must also look at his omnipresence. In his omnipresence, I said it to you last, last time, that we travel. To get to London from Orlando, I had to catch a car, catch a plane, use my shoe wagon, get on the plane, get in another car, and get in the car, come up the elevator, and get to my lodgings. Because we travel by planes, escalators, trams, buggies, boats, canoes, bicycles, elevators, escalators. But God doesn't travel. He's in New York at the same time as he's in London. He's on the fifth floor at the same time as he's on the 150th floor. He's in Lagos, Nigeria at the same time as he's in Tokyo, Japan. He's in Rio de Janeiro at the same time as in Johannesburg. He's in all places at all times. He's in Pluto, Mars, Saturn, in Orion, in Pleiades, in Arcturus, in Mazaruth, all at the same time. He's seated in heavenly places, but he's got his foot on, on Earth's terrestrial board because friend he is everywhere at the same time 
and he's everywhere at all times. That is quite amazing to me. That means when you left the house, he was with you in the house. When you got in the car, he was one who anointed your car like as if it was not When you got here, did you not notice that he was already here? Yet some would not be perceptive of that reality that they miss out on the fact that God is Shammah. He is God everywhere at the same time. Time. But he's not only present everywhere at the same time, he is also present at all time in all times. And that means he's the best comforter that you could ever have. He is uh, in, in 1963 at the same time as he's in 1943, at the same time as he's in 1973 and 1983 and uh, 1993 and 2003, at the same time he's in 2013 and 2020. 23 at the same time as he's in next year and he's in 20 2033 all at the same time that means if he's got your hand and he's talking to you he's talking to you from a premise of great knowledge about everything that is going to happen in your life everything that has already happened in your life and everything that is happening right now he's, nothing is hid from his eyes he has total omnipresence which further informs his omniscience hallelujah to god are you here somebody that means my friends because he's eternally present in all time when he speaks a word to you in the now that word is able to go back into your yesterday and heal the tragic trauma that you suffered because of a blindside swipe that hit you badly psycho-emotionally and debilitated you physically financially and otherwise and heal the trauma because you know you can go through something friend and even though it's done and gone, the impact and the effect of that thing can beleaguer you for the rest of your life. Unless you hear an eternal word from the eternal God who has eternal infinite power that he can fix your yesterday and its impact on your now and its ability to prevent your tomorrow. But he also can heal you heal you in the nowness of your struggle. Whilst at the same time, he guarantees with eternal security your tomorrow and all of it that's why I don't joke with the word of God when he sends an ascension gift I'm listening carefully because the word is traversing the full expanse of my life past present and future with the presence of God in which there's always a fullness of joy and great pleasure forevermore I said all that to warm up my gift and to get you in track so he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, but my dealing today is his omniscience. That means science can say whatever they want to say, but when the scientist of scientists, the omniscient one, says what he says, he has all empiricism in his hands. He's the empiricist, he's the empirical data, he's the word that cannot be faulted. And he knows everything. In fact, even though he's called the thought, he cannot think. That doesn't mean he's a dummy. What it does mean is that you and I, our present thought is based on an earlier thought, based on a prior thought, based on our processes of learning. So we come to new knowledge daily. But God does not think, he just foreknows. He cannot come to knowledge, otherwise he's not omniscient. 
He doesn't gain new knowledge at any point in time. When I went to the shop to try and buy a blazer so I could look as dapper as Pastor Egbert, I wasn't sure what color I was going to get because navy has many different shades and hues. I wasn't sure what the lining would be like or what the buttons would be like, whether it be working buttons or not. Um, and I, I really wanted to catch up to him and look like he looks. But, but uh, until I got there, I couldn't make a choice. So I looked at everything they had and they showed me the fabric, showed me the buttons. And as I got to new knowledge, I began to assemble my creation through the new knowledge I got to. But God, he never comes to new knowledge. But that means when you see certain terms in scripture, like God, God's hand was on Elijah, it doesn't mean that Elijah was running around like a four-year-old son and God is running behind him with his hand on him, no. That's an anthropomorphism. To try to suggest to us uh, by understanding of an earthly reality how to grasp in the grip of our mind a heavenly reality that is ungraspable except you have a metaphor to understand it properly. Or when God says that I nestled Israel under my feathers. It doesn't mean he's a bird. It just means that the way a bird nestles her eggs and her chicks in the warmth of her wings and her feathers uh, uh, is the same way that the equivalent of the bird's wings of this infinite God are what he nestles you under so that what's inside you can hatch. Because right now you're an egg, but what's inside of you is animated. Right now you're earth, but earth, what's inside of you is everything we see in creation today. Moses thought it was barren, but it wasn't. Until God started calling out things, then it showed. You will show. I said you will show. Let me try these folk over here. I said you will show. You see, you can, you can have gone through something so terrible that, that it has caused a calamitous darkness of blackness to cover the potential of what's inside of you so that when others look at you they see nothing when you look at you you see nothing but when Moses said the earth was without form and void he was wrong later he would admit he was wrong because he then said uh, 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 God said let there be light and right after God said let there be light God started calling for things uh, from what Moses thought was a barren earth, but it was not barren. Hallelujah. And because of what we've been through, a veil of darkness has cloaked and veiled the possibility buried inside of you for friends. We do have this, this treasure in earthen vessels so that the excellency of the power might be of God and not of man. So God who commanded the light to shine in that darkness that Moses was caused by the darkness to feel that there was nothing in the earth commands also the light of this glorious gospel in the face of Jesus so that like the earth it gave birth to mountains to mammals to animals to aquatic creatures to the splendor of the avian kingdom the splendor of the animated kingdom the splendor of the aquatic kingdom splendor of the miracle of the mineral kingdom because it was there but because of incidents we are blinded to see our possibility your possibility is Christos, creator life, creator in you. And he had created being. He was just bringing forth what he had already buried there. It was maybe reduced to components, but once he called it to come forth, the bones came together. The components came together. The genetics came together. The tissue, the protoplasm, it all came together.
and life came to them. So this God uses anthropomorphisms in the scripture to teach us veritable truth about how to access his glory to facilitate your future. And your future is always his purpose for the child of God. And the first anthropomorphism that I want to discuss with you is this. When the Bible says in the scripture that God thinks it's an anthropomorphism. Jeremiah 29 verse 11. I know the thoughts that I think concerning you Thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a fulfilled expectation. It's an anthropomorphism. Because God doesn't think. He knows. That means it is certain knowledge, not contemplative thought. He is certain about it. So when you see in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, I'll start from verse 3. Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has, past tense, blessed us, past tense, with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then he tells us in verse 4, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. What does he mean? God cannot choose, so chosen there is an anthropomorphism. He always knew. Because to say he chose means that he came to new knowledge. And based on new knowledge, based on your performance, he now chose you. That would be wrong. Because before you even had a chance to breathe, and before your great-great-great-granddaddy had a chance to breathe, God had already chosen you. Do you get it? This is important because he didn't choose. He always knew. Chose is an attempt to frame the, the term has always known he was going to bless you in the way he speaks of in chapter 4 to be in his sight without blame but there's nothing wrong with you you are complete in Christ therefore there's no reason why he cannot bless you because when he looks at you he sees the perfection of Jesus Christ that's why 1 John 4 17 we are fearless in the day of judgment and in all judgment why? because we have been made perfect in his love for as he, the resurrected Christ, is, so are we in this world. Please, is Jesus crying there? So why are we crying? Is his leg broken there? So why are you thinking that your leg won't heal? Is he powerless there? Is he under there? Is he above only there? Is he head only there? Then as he is, so are we. Is he at the right hand of all authority, which means in supreme authority? Yes. So are we. But if you are not conscious of it, you can't tap into it. So when he chose us, the importance of this is this. He didn't choose us. He always knew he was going to bless us and use us. Always. 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 Why is this important? In order to undo what God anthropomorphically chose us to do, 
and chose to do with us. Satan has to access that point and undo the choice. But since he cannot, then that means what God decided, and we know he never decided, he always just knew, what he decided to do, nothing can stop it from happening. And if you are crooked, he will straighten you out. And he's not going to wait for you to get straight before he, he blesses you. It is the goodness of God that will make you change your mind. Metanoia, the word for repentance. It's the goodness of God that will make you change your mind to serve and know God better. You get it? In the old covenant, which is not the covenant we operate under. If you operate under the old covenant, you're under a curse. Not me, not my curse. But the curse of the law. Yeah? And um, in the old covenant, you had to do good. And then God would bless you. But in the new covenant, God doesn't wait for you to do good. He does you good. And then you say, wow, it's part of all you know about me. God, man, you are consistently, sustainably good. I'm go I changed my mind about you. It is his goodness that leads men to metanoia, to repentance. Are you there? I'm building concepts in your thinking because I'm trying to land the plane. So it's an anthropomorphism. That means it's going to happen. Whatever he promised was always for your purpose, for his purpose for your life. It's going to happen. Oh God. I said it's going to. Have you ever been under the promise of God talking you in a certain direction and you started feeling like it was going to happen then something blindsided you whether it was economic, emotional, personal, moral and it swerved you on one side and you started thinking that it's not going to happen anymore yet at the time you were deeply convinced that this is God's promise for God's purpose and plan and, and, and now you're not thinking that way anymore. The devil is a liar. If he said it, it's going to happen. Now, if you don't believe it, you can sit pretty, act important, and say nothing to nobody. But I want you to give two witnesses to at least two persons and tell them, I don't know what it is, but it's going to happen. It's got to happen. And if it doesn't happen, then it makes God a liar. And that's one thing we are sure of. God cannot be a liar. He cannot. That's why to preserve his integrity, there's a host of angels either in the category of the seraph or the cherubim. And their job is to maintain the integrity of God. Not that they give him integrity. It is their job to blow integrity on him. The integrity he gave them. They give back to him. Hallelujah. That means anything that God has to do in creation to make sure that what he said about you happens, he will do to make it happen. Whether he has to manipulate time or whether he has to manipulate happenings or whether he has to manipulate opportunity, he will do whatever he has to do to make it happen in your life. And you must live with this understanding that God will make it happen. And he'll test your faith. He'll test your faith to see if you really can still keep holding on to his promise in spite of what you're going through. Are you there, somebody? So this God is bigger. He's bigger than nature. That means he's bigger than the oceans, bigger than the seas, bigger than the mountains, bigger than the galaxies, bigger than the Milky Way, and bigger than the universe. He is bigger than all of creation. He doesn't live in the universe. He can participate in it. Uh, but really what is, is that the universe lives in him. He's bigger than people. 
He's bigger than personalities. He's bigger than potentates and pontificating popes. He's bigger than, than popes and bishops and archbishops. He's bigger than presidents. He's bigger than, than cabinets. He's bigger than G7. He's bigger than all of that. But he's also bigger than time. And when he created this expansive universe, uh, uh, there must be a reason. It is a system. And I personally believe that the billions of planets, the billions of galaxies, that one day we're going to inhabit them. Because God is never arbitrary. He didn't create them for nothing. Somebody like you now, you will have like one galaxy. I think the term... You have done well and been faithful in little, rule ten cities. That was the limitedness of the language that the writer wrote in. If he could see the whole of creation, he wouldn't be thinking cities, he'd be thinking galaxies. And you're going to have such an enormous body that your body can be in any part of the entire universe at the same time. The same body that Jesus had. So it's, it's a mansion. And he didn't mean brick and mortar building. He meant it was an incredible piece of work that could never die again. It could go through walls and still be flesh and blood and still be spirit at the same time. And it could disappear from the room without having an accident with the wall or leaving the food he ate on the wall. He was spirit enough to go through walls, but he was flesh and bone enough to eat food and then go through the wall and not leave the fish and food on the wall. That's pretty amazing. That body would never get sick again. That body would live forever. That body could operate in the omniscience, in the omnipresence and the omnipotence of God. Can you imagine that many God men or God women in the universe? You go better out. You're looking for space. From that little, you know, English homes make the English very reserved because your party wall on two sides makes you silent. That's one of the reasons why I hated coming to London. Because when I pray, I like to hosha, loba, riga buteleho, leho. And then the neighbor knocks on and says, What language is that? It's somewhat disturbing to our neighborhood. And I do say, I'm very sorry. We're going to have space. That's why they call it space. I'm trying to go somewhere. Get serious, Paul. <laughs> How many of you need space? Go ahead, ask him for space. You pray the mysteries a little better. You see, when we pray in the understanding, we're praying about problems we understand and solutions that we understand. But when we pray in the spirit, we use that one, to build ourselves up into our highest level of faith, but two, we use that to deal with things that our understanding does not yet understand. So you're praying correctly, accurately when you show her Rico, Bilo, Sato, Sariko, Rila, La, 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 Shulebuta. Hallelujah. But your mind is unfruitful. That's why you still need to read the Bible. Or let God give you the interpretation according to the Bible. Your greatest time of information that is specific to you now in Rhema terms has everything to do with prayer. Prayer and its real power is not what you say to God. It is what God says back to you. That's critical. And when you pray, God is not about to do something for you. 
He has done it all already. That's why the prophets of old, standing in another covenant, said, before you call, he has answered. While you are yet speaking, he has heard. What was he referring to? He was referring to the cross of Calvary. When Jesus breathed near to his last breath and said, Tetelestai, meaning it is finished. So prayer doesn't move the hand of God. God's hand has already moved. His right hand and his holy arm have gotten us the victory. He's referring to Christ. But when you pray, you're moving into the realm where you can receive. So I'm going to use you, Egbert. God has already done it and it's in his open hand. Hold it. No, 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 no. Come yet. Uh, what prayer does doesn't move God to you. It moves you to God. Speak in tongues. So it's moving him into the place where he can receive it. Hallelujah. And where God wants to taunt you more, the Bible says he's a God who hides himself. So he will hide himself near your next blessing. And as you pray, your prayer moves you into vicinity of both your purpose, your destiny, and God who is your destiny helper. So prayer didn't move his hand. His hand was always open with what he has for you. You're already healed. You're already blessed. You're already the head. You're already above only. You're already seated in heavenly places in Christ. You already have every spiritual blessing abrogated or promulgated for you. Glory to God. Are you there? Okay, we've built enough now. So, sit down, please. Why did God create man? If you ever unravel this, you'll begin to understand your place as man in humankind. So that you would govern the earth. Governance 101. Because we're going to govern the universe. We're going to be the judges of angels. What was he hoping for when he called forth man? If you understand that, you'll understand what he was hoping for when he called you as man. God chose to remain invisible. But when he created you, he created you invisible too. And he reposed you within himself. Step number one, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And let them have dominion over the planet earth. Step two, in Genesis chapter two, he picks up clay, shapes it whilst he's walking, and he breathes into that clay vessel. <laughs> man, the breath of lives. Yeah. And man became an animated soul. He knew how many nephrons were in his kidney. He knew all his organs, all his tissue, every single cell, he knew it by number and by name. Man knew how many hairs were on his head and he knew each hair by number. Not only God, man. He was just like God. Powerful, amazing. And the reason why he gave man an earth suit is that he wanted man to be the God of this world so that he would remain invisible and creation would extol man as their God. And a man in wisdom 
will deflect it all back to his God. The scripture cannot be broken. You are God's. You are sons of the Most High, the Bible says. And you'll understand this when you read John properly. As many as believed on Jesus Christ, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. This is Regency family, royal priesthood, sonship, peculiar sonship. If you go to the Emirates, you see that the whole cabinet are members of the royal family. It used to be like that here. They didn't just have people in governing positions, but they must first have royal family. What makes you royal? That's why when somebody talks to you anyhow, you feel somehow. Because by nature, new nature, you like to be in charge. Whether you're male or female, you want to be in charge. That's why I have some problems with my wife. Because she wants to be in charge. So I must be in charge to the degree that it has enough space for her to also be in charge. But Oga said, get Oga. Jesus self get master. Sorry, I didn't mean to speak in vernacular. So I guess most of you do speak it. Um, so, but where did I get off track? So, the purpose of man is to govern the earth. That's why we pray. Our Father, who is not on earth at that time, but who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your dominion's government come on earth as it is in heaven. That will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, the purpose of man is to colonize earth until earth is just like heaven. In atmosphere, in purpose, in promise, in standards, in principles, in peace, in righteousness, joy. In the spiritual atmosphere of the dominion of the Holy Spirit, the Holy God, God the Spirit. That's the purpose. Right now that happens in our hearts and we extend it to humanity. That's what we are here for. That's why this is how he taught us to pray. How, what does it mean specifically to you? It has to do with your particular passions, God-given passions, your particular talents. They're all indicators of what your purpose is. And he will present you huge targets that seem impossible to you, but remember, he's the omnipotent God. What he has purposed, he would do. This thing is simpler than we make it. Our job as leaders is to take profoundly um, enormous concepts and simplify them so they're bite-sized and you can digest it line upon line, precept upon precept till you conceive in you tomorrow's reality. And so Adam had creator life in him but unfortunately for him he didn't understand it to the level that he could teach it properly and so his wife in my opinion, lacked tutelage. So she was beguiled, he sinned. Because Satan presents to Eve and says, did God really say you should not eat of that tree? That tree is beautiful, don't you think so? Say, if you eat it, 
you become like God. He was selling her her own furniture. And she bought it at the expense of losing her ownership of her godness. Because by offering her what she already had, he was suggesting her you don't really have it. And that's what the enemy does. You already have everything. Once you are born again, you already have everything. And you must nurture that awareness how uh, blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But instead, he day and night meditates in the word of God. That man shall be like a tree planted by the river's water. His leaf shall not wither. Uh, he will bring forth his fruit in his season. And whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Why? He does not allow the fowls of the air to steal the word out of him. So he makes sure he's bombarding his mind, his psychology, his emotions, and his volition with the word of life in proper interpretation. So that when the enemy comes, his shield of faith prevents the enemy from stealing the seed of his word from his understanding. David said, I, thy word have I heed in a place where hell's hounds and hordes and birds and fowls cannot take it the principalities and powers of this world they don't shoot at you with bullets they shoot at you with words have you been somewhere before and they just said something negative about you and it affected you if a preacher gets off the pulpit and somebody says you didn't really preach well it will affect him unless he has trained his mind. You know why? When you preach, you're at your most vulnerable because you're speaking from the inside out. So be careful who you're with when you've just gotten through preaching. Surround yourself with armor bearers and people who are not psychophants, but who will show you mirror value. And if they have to call those things that are not as though they are, they should. Hallelujah. And, and so you've got to nurture your consciousness. The problem with the church is we are not nurturing our consciousness of all that we have in Christ. If you meet a real house on the rock person, they would tell you they are confident and hopefully not arrogant. They have courage. They can make it through storms, trials, trials. You knock them down, they will get up. It's deliberate because we know Satan cannot stop what God has already done. But he's going to try to stop you from getting through this ugly time, from coming through the pit, from coming through your process, because he knows if you get there, you've got it. So our job is we don't get sad when the enemy gets mad, we get glad. Why? Because we know that his attack is an indicator that there's something that he's trying to prevent you from getting to. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. How do you think we take on things like the experience? You must be a madman to do something like that. Because you're running over 400 projects to make one event of just 12 hours. It costs colossal amounts of money that we don't have. And if five things go wrong, it could make everything go wrong, including one bad rain. Or one electricity problem, or one generator catches fire. How do you do that? You must have courage. And you must also have trust in God. And also, you must know that everybody on your team, Satan is looking for them. Because if he cannot get to you, he's going to try to get to you through one of them in any means or way possible. That's why if you don't pray for your leader, you are foolish. Yes, 
Yoruba so pe ode ode kan lasan lasan so i'm looking at that clock since now we're just talking about the so we're going somewhere so stay in your flow so what was god hoping for when he created man heaven's union with earth that's why he took of heaven and put you in an earth suit and said bring heaven to earth and he planted heaven in the eastward part in eden and he said all i need you to do is grow eden because eden is heaven on earth grow it till the knowledge of the glory of god the experiential intimacy of the glory of god covers the whole earth that was adam's job but before he could start he stopped and he failed and he fell and he said it's the fault of the woman you gave me whereas it was really his fault because he should never have taken the fruit from her you know why He died with his wife. She gave him the fruit and together they faced the judgment. The judgment was prophesied that if you do this, judgment will suddenly come. What he was supposed to do was he was supposed to say, honey, I'm not taking that. Now I have to die for you. And he would have been able to do so sinlessly. Now the wages of sin is death. And so if he had no sin, hell could not keep him in the grave nor in Hades. So he would have died for her and the result is that he would have become the first redeemer. There would have been no need for Jesus Christ because he would have become the redeemer. Men, that's what we are supposed to do. Why is he does those crazy things? Don't die for her. That's how you love her the way Christ loved us. Don't die for her. It will pay you, let it pay you. It will suffer you, let it suffer you. Say, honey, look at what I'm doing for you. It's you that should be getting this wahala. I'm taking it for you. Please don't ask me to do this in my own house. I'm still growing. I'm still growing. <laughs> Hallelujah. And then God would have raised him up. And because they are one, she would have been raised up with him. I would have heard the first gospel if Adam had done what was right. You get it? But because he did it, God had to bring another man, Adam. Because that prototype, I'm sure you understand the term, had failed. And if God replicated humanity according to that prototype, we would be a failed race. So he had to come himself as the last man, Adam. And as he came as the last man, Adam, he then becomes our prototype. I'm going to give you the sneak preview. And this is where the prototype is. And this is why Romans 8.28 operates. Romans 8.28 says that we know that all things, all things work together for the good of them who love God and are the called according to his purpose. That means when they bless you with a job, it's good. But when they suck you from the job, it's still good. That means when they give you no money and leave you broke and bankrupt, it's good but when they give you plenty it's still good hallelujah that means when he says I want to marry you it's good but when he says I don't want to marry you anymore it's still good hallelujah that means when they say there's a job open for you and you're one of four candidates it's good but when they say I'm sorry you don't qualify it is still good and God will take what was good what was bad and what was ugly and he'll work it all together for your good why? 
Because verse 29, whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image, the likeness, the exactness of his son. Why? So that his son might be the prototokos, the firstborn, the prototype of many brethren. Hallelujah. When BMW want to make a car, they don't roll out 20,000 or 50,000 or 100,000. They make one car. They bash it, they speed it, they crumple it at higher speeds. They put it on skid plates. They test the dynamic stability control. They take that car through hell. Like the Bible says, the captain of our salvation was made perfect through suffering. And once that car has been Affected, the engineer will sign the engine block and put the BMW logo on it. And then BMW will roll out 50,000, 100,000, 1 million of that exact replica of the prototype. And so what the prototype can do, all the models can do more. Did Jesus not say, greater works shall you do because I go to the Father. I will send you the comforter so that the creator life that is in him is also in you. Now now let's talk. Are we ready? Now let's talk. So now, because of man's failure and fall, being the God of this earth, the one here to regulate it, to promote heaven on earth, uh, he had failed. And therefore, he now needs to be redeemed because fallen man cannot redeem himself. And likewise, God cannot redeem man unless he is first relative to man because you cannot re re redeem what you are not relative to. If I'm in pain and trouble, unless you understand the root of my pain, the source of my pain, the nature of my pain, how it hurts me, how it devastates me. You have no ability to redeem me from it. Hallelujah. That's why he says, if you see a man overtaken in a fall, uh, judge him. No. It says, ye who are spiritual, restore such one, considering yourself also, because you have the same propensity, if you don't already have the same experience. Hallelujah. Because there must be a relativity before there can be redemption. You must suffer what I suffer. You must feel what I feel. You must hurt where I hurt. You must experientially understand what it feels like to be me, and have gone through what I've gone through. Otherwise, all your words, no matter how powerful they are they are dislocated and inconnected they cannot pull me back to a place of restoration hallelujah to God hallelujah so we have a problem because redemption now requires a unique personality it cannot be man because he's failed it cannot be God because he's not relative he has never known what it's like to be thirsty hungry tired or sleepy God who watches over Israel does not sleep nor slumber. So how does he know what tired feels like? How does he know what hungry feels like? He's never hungered for anything that he doesn't already have. He's never been anywhere that he's not already there before he gets there. He has never been asked a question that he did not know the answer. But one thing he did not experience was us. Did not know what it was like to be a fallen man. So he could not redeem us. That means there must be a unique personality who can span the abyss of impassibility between fallen man and thrice holy God. Who could that possibly be? Mendel's law tells us that the offspring is possessed with the characteristics dominant and recessive of its immediate progenitors. Meaning that everything that is in the offspring is first in the two progenitors. And so, Mendel having propagated that principle, now informs us that in his mathematics, that if your mother is human and your father is human, you are human. Man plus man is man. 
If your mother is deity and your father is deity, then you are deity. God plus God is God. Problem. Because neither God nor man could span the abyss of eternal separation between fallen man and thrice holy God. So, there must be a unique personality. That is why an angel from glory shows up in the house of what was a teenage girl about to become a teenage pregnancy and God was the culprit. And he says, Hail Mary! I know you're about to get married. But you are blessed and highly favored amongst all women. Says so you're about to conceive God in your belly. She asked the question, how shall this thing be, seeing I know not a man? This means that his conception cannot be his origin. Nor his birth, it cannot be his origin. Because God pre-existed humankind. He pre-existed creation. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Bethlehem of Judah, though you are small among the thousands of, of, of Israel, out of you shall come unto me he that shall be ruler, whose goings forth are of old, and who is from everlasting. Psalm 90 verse 2, before you made the mountains, before you, you created the world, the heavens, thou art from everlasting to everlasting. David said, I've searched eternity past, eternity future, looking for your death and your birth. Though Jesus died, God never died. And I conclude, you are from everlasting. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning, that means before the beginning began, was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. There was not anything created that was not created by him. That means he pre-exists all creation. In him was life. The life was the light of men. And he has established that he was before the beginning. Verse 14, he says, now the word became flesh. Hebrews writes it this way, I believe it was Apollos, that said a body was prepared for him of which it is written in the volume of the book to do his will in that body. That means his conception was not his origin. In fact, he's the originator. He originated the origination when the origination originated, but he himself he has no origin. He is the originator. He started the start when the star started, but he himself, he has no start. He begun the beginning when the beginning begun, but he has no beginning, therefore he has no ending. That's why David said he is from everlasting to everlasting. You alone are God. And besides you in that capacity, there is no other. So we see a unique personality here and it suggests to us that there now therefore must be two types of life in Jesus Christ. The first life is humanity. The other life is divinity. Visible, invisible. Corruptible, incorruptible. Mortal, immortal. Humanity, deity. The invisible in the visible. Immortal in the mortal. Incorruptible, incorruptible. Eternal, intemporal. Uh, forever, intemporary. God. In man. Remember, he's the prototype. And there must be many brethren for the prototype. And the models must be exactly like the prototype. 
so that whatever the prototype could do when they sell the vessels or the models, it will perform on the level of the advertorial prototype, the tested prototype, the prototype that went through hell and high water to prove that what they said it could do, it could do. Likewise, if he could get through it, you could. That's why he stole the sting of death. There were three thieves on those three crosses. One stole man from God. The other stole the fruit from, from God. Hallelujah. And the third stole the sting of death. Out of death. Can I go further? Two types of life. That means, bros, you could be fooled if you only see the carpenter's son. That's why he said to them, did you not know I should be about my father's business? Disclaimer of Joseph. You know the story, so I won't enlarge it. That means you see his humanity and maybe not perceive his deity. Until his deity seizes occasion to do something that only deity could do. So he walks up a mountain to pray for nearly 12 hours. He's decreasing his consciousness of his humanity and increasing his awareness of his divinity. That he is the creator of all the mountains on a small scale and the creator of all of the universe because he was praying through the night where he could number and name each one of the colossuses. And when he comes down from the mountain, he's walking human. But he has no respect for the line between water and land. Because he's not sustained above the ground by gravity's force against the force of his weight. And now there's something that doesn't have the force of sod. And he keeps walking on top of what other people were sinking in. That was his deity. Another time, he's just worked miracles. And he's come to the same region where Elijah and Elijah raised dead sons. And just as he gets to the gate nearby the cemetery, a woman who has earlier lost her husband and is now a widow, she's weeping inconsolably because her only remaining breadwinner, her son, is now dead. Her husband was obviously a very important man, and so the whole city has come out. And she's weeping inconsolably behind his coffin, what the Bible calls a beer. And Jesus has come at the same time. Two of them have a crowd has a crowd following him because he's the creator life in human body. And they've seen his miracles and they want to be part of what is such a pleasant atmosphere surrounding his presence. The presence of the Lord, there's a fullness of joy. And they're about to witness another miracle eyeball to eyeball, face to face. And they're weeping together with her. It's, 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 it's an inconsolable moment. He walks past the coffin his crowd is behind him. Two crowds collide. Her crowd is with her trying to comfort her. And yet she remains inconsolable. And the first thing he says to her is weep not. That's all he said. Stop crying. Help me slap three people a high five and tell them stop crying about it. I know it hurts your feelings. I know it hurts your economy. I know it hurts your reputation. I know it hurt how people saw you, how they treat you, and how they see you, but stop crying about it. I know it hurts you. I know it bruises your feelings. I know it makes you feel less than you really ought to be, but the devil is a liar. When God tells you to stop crying, it means he has seen something or he knows something that you don't know. What he means is that the thing that you're crying about, it's not going to exist in a few moments. The thing you felt you lost, you're going to get it 
back, good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. The thing that broke your heart is going to heal your heart. I'm about to do something in your life. When God tells you stop crying, it means baby, wipe your tears. There's going to be no reason to cry any longer. Who am I preaching to this morning? Who recognizes that your spirit is in witness to this thing that you've been crying? Have you not noticed that most of the things you cried about, there was no point crying about them because they were not all that you imagined them to be. It wasn't going to end your life or end your career or end your opportunities. It wasn't going to destroy you anyways because you are indestructible until you have finished what God has called you to do. As long as you remain in faith. So he walks past the beer and he says to her, stop crying about it. And then he turns back. She's still weeping. She doesn't really know who he is. But it was a beautiful coincidence of heaven meeting earth. Of creator life meaning bro meeting broken life. And he goes to the coffin and he touches it. And he spoke to him as if he was living. He said, young man, arise. The poor bears are still holding the coffin. And the young man sits up and they start having a conversation. And the Bible says he took the boy and presented him to his mother. She stopped crying immediately. The Bible says great awe was upon that whole city. God wants to use your circumstance, your public pain, your personal devastation as public acclaim of his glory. That's why he allowed it to happen in the first place because he's going to turn it around and bring everybody in your township who knows about your plight and your predicament to the knowledge of God that God cares about you. That God is touched with the feeling of your infirmities. That God knows what it feels like to be you and therefore he's able to connect his power by relativity to your problem and turn your problem around. Who am I talking to? If that's you, beat your chest and shout, I will cry cry no more say it again I will cry no more he had increased his divinity and decreased his humanity he was not speaking as a man he was speaking as the giver of life he was speaking as the source of life on another occasion he gets to the house of Mary and Martha you know the story right well you know it quite well uh, he had heard many days earlier that Lazarus was sick and he said I'm not going this sickness is not unto death it's unto the glory of God then he hears that Lazarus has now died he said Lazarus is only sleeping but I'll go and wake him up then he explains a couple of days later that Lazarus has really died but I'm going to wake him up. He had advanced knowledge that Lazarus was now dead and yet when he gets to the house bro, he wept, the Bible says. Why would he weep when he knew that he was going to raise him up? Because he had humanity. And you cannot release your deity until you exercise the compassion of your humanity. The truth was that Jesus was missing Lazarus, but he had to allow him to go through Hades so that he would give him a greater revelation of God as healer, but now God as the resurrection and the life. Creator in human cavity. Hallelujah to somebody. And after he's been there for a while in his role as high priest because to be high priest you must be human uh, otherwise you cannot connect your glorious divinity to my humanity and all of a sudden he slips out of his humanity a little bit and he says 
show me where you buried him. In other words, tell me where you stopped believing that your brother would be seen again and to enjoy you again and you enjoy him. And he said, but by now, uh, Master, he stinketh. He said, your brother's going to rise, but you have to believe. Take me there. And they took him there. When he got there, you are not looking at Jesus, the son of the carpenter. You are looking at God, the creator of not only the ends of the earth, but the universe to its extremity. You're looking at absolute raw, infinite power. This is infinity in finiteness. This is incorruptibility in corruptibility. This is uh, eternalness in mortality. This is God in man. But he has pushed down his humanity and he has elevated his divinity. And this is God the creator. And he says, take the stone away. Much like take the darkness away. Uh, Because when you are under the law, it's like a veil of darkness that prevents you from seeing possibility because your human flaw denies you the sense of entitlement to what God has made available to you. And so when they roll the stone away, they were rolling away the curse of the law which had brought Lazarus to his death. And after he had done that, he says in a prayer that, Father, I could think Lazarus out of the grave, but they will not connect his resurrection to my deity in this humanity. So I'm going to pray out loud knowing that you will do it anyways and Lazarus will come forth. And when he had been done praying, he then speaks like the creator and calls man to come out of the earth. And man comes leaping and bounding, throwing grave clothes out of the grave. Why? Because deity in humanity has spoken to the the yard uh, where Lazarus was kept in the eternal world. And he was brought back into his body and the sickness that killed him and the damage the sickness had done was instantaneously completely repaired. God is going to repair you totally. He's going to repair your mind. He's going to repair your body. He's going to repair uh, your mentality. He's going to repair your sense of who he is in you so that you will know that nothing is impossible with God. The last one I want to touch, sit sit down please, is the transfiguration. And in the transfiguration, he takes three of the 12. You can't take everybody with you. And he takes particularly Peter, James, and John. Peter is the rock, the stone. James is not James, he is Jacob, which means the replacer, the usurper. And then John means the grace of God. So he took the stone, which is what the law is written upon, He took Jacob, which is the replacer, and he took John, the grace of God. The law has been replaced by the grace of God. That's who he took up there. And when he gets up there, before their eyes, he is transfigured till he's like glistening white lightning that there was no whiteness other than glistening brightness to his form. He was instantaneously all God, yet with something that resembled his resurrected body. And appearing there with him was the law, Moses, and the revivalist of the law, Elijah. And when Peter saw it, he was dead asleep, he wakes up and he says, Master, let me build, let us build three churches. One for the law, one for the revivalist of the law, and one for you. Instantly, God removed Moses and Elijah out of the way. Straight. Now, what are you building church for Moses and Elijah for? 
And then he bellows out of the cloud of glory and says, this is my beloved son. Hear ye him. In other words, this is not time to listen to Moses until you have the right spectacles. Otherwise, you will see the shadow as the substance instead of seeing the, the substance in the shadow. Hallelujah. And then he raised him up. What were Moses and Elijah talking to Christ about? The Bible says, what his death would accomplish. Our redemption. So redemption is important. And Jesus has increased his divinity, decreased his humanity in every single miracle that he wrought. So it was powerful. Hell now hates him. The two instruments of hell will be the government and the Jewish religious order. And they decided we are going to kill him. But my Bible says in the chapter of wisdom in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that had the princes of this world known they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. You see, God had a plan and anytime God has a plan, he has to have a strategy. So his plan was to take Joseph and make him the king of the world empire of the day so that Joseph preceding them to Egypt would become the relative that could affect his power redemptively to save his brothers from dying in the famine, particularly Judah, who was carrying in his loins Jesus. Do you get it? That's why it was Judah who negotiated his redemption from the pit. You, you understand? So every time God has a plan, he has a strategy. What was God's strategy for the plan? The hatred of Joseph's brothers. So don't get upset with hate. It is normally God's strategy for God's plan of redeeming you and your hateful brothers. So don't get upset when they hate you. Just say it's going to happen soon. Don't let hatred get to you. They're supposed to hate you. If you have creator life inside, they're supposed to hate you. So God had a plan for our redemption. And his plan needed to have a strategy. What was the strategy? That the high priest and his Sanhedrin would hate Jesus so much that they would collude complicitly with Rome to kill him, not recognizing that it was God's strategy and that their hatred that would develop into execution would become God's strategy to release the creator life from the human body. Otherwise, the creator life would be trapped in one singular when God's plan was to have a nation full of creator life people. Do you get it? I hope you do. So they tore at his humanity because that's all that they could tear at. Your eyes can't hit what your hands don't see. Your hands can't hit what your eyes don't see. So they kept fighting his humanity and tore him apart, but they didn't realize they were releasing his creator life and his human spirit so that his body would become the perfect sacrifice that became a substitute in our place so that by identifying with us, as substitute, he would be able to redeem us. So they took his body, carried it to a tomb. Whilst creator life, that's God the spirit, and the human spirit of Jesus, he had two types of life, went down to Hades. And he said, you owe me three keys, death, hell, and the grave. In other words, Mr. Hell, no human being will ever come to hell again because of sin. Kill me. It's okay but I will resurrect now. You don't go to hell because of sin. You go to hell because you did not accept or did not receive Christ as your personal savior. 
because he is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Not of the Christian, but the world, which includes Christian. You understand? So he died for every heinous sinner, including Hitler, Abacha. I won't add the other one, but you know what I mean. Um, but they didn't receive it by faith. So as a result, they go to hell because they did not accept Jesus Christ as Savior. And when he saves, he saves completely. To the uttermost, the Bible says. Otherwise, you didn't receive the Savior. Hallelujah. That's why the Bible says, had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Because in so doing, they were providing propitiation, atonement for all human sin of all time, past, present, and future. See, let me say it this way. Can you be the, can you be the priest? Can you be the lamb? So I've committed terrible sin. The priest is there. And I bring my lamb. It's brand new. It's not up to 18 months old. It has no blemish. It's male. It's firstborn. It has no wrinkles. It has no problems. And I bring it to the priest. The priest is not going to inspect me for my faults. That's why I brought a lamb. This is the lamb of man. This is the lamb that the priesthood requires. So he checks out the lamb, looks for whether it has spots, blemish, wrinkles, that all its body, everything, no scabies, no, no, no problems. And once he's satisfied that it is perfect, I place my hand for the transfer of sin to my substitute. And then my sins are transferred to him. Then we kill the lamb. And the lamb goes to the barbecue and they smoke him there, whilst I walk away with something I did not come with. I came with condemnation, but when the lamb took my place, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ, inside the lamb, I have his innocence, has set me free from the law of sin and condemnation because another took my condemnation. John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God, not the lamb of Moses. The Lamb of God that taketh away. Once and for all time, Hebrew says, the sin of the world. You get it? So when they killed his humanity, that was the Lamb. Deity was always deity. The high priest of our confession. Always say, thank you, gentlemen. And so, what did he accomplish? And this is what I want to talk to you about. I'm, I'm virtually there. What did he accomplish? He paid the price for your sinless perfection in the eyes of God. Not yet your forensic reality, but as far as God is concerned, when he looks at you, he cannot see a fault in you. Because another took your place. Hebrews teaches it right well. Hallelujah. That's why I get really blessed. Because God treats me just the way he treats Christ. There's no big secret. I'm not a special guy. I just believe. You understand? I just simply believe. So I believe that God treats Christ and exalts him above the heavens. Gives him his own authority. He treats him like the majesty. He opens doors for him. He says, sit down with me in the royal throne. And he's in command of everything there. That's why Isaiah said, command ye me concerning my sons. Yeah? 
Are you with me? Stay with me. Don't go anywhere yet. That was just the introduction. Yeah, stay with me. And so, when he died, he died to present me blameless on the cross. And once I believe, I activate the blamelessness. And it doesn't change when you steal the goat. Do you understand? Because Ephesians 1, 7, Colossians 1, 14, in whose blood we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his grace. So God has already dealt with your past debt, your present debt, and your future debt. It's not license for you to sin. It is power for you to be conformed to the image of God's son as far as your character and your charisma is concerned. Yeah? You follow? So now, I am now clean. The believer in the efficacious work of the cross is now perfectly clean so that the creator life of Christ can now inhabit you so that God now has models of his prototype. Hallelujah to God. So that you now have this treasure in earthen vessels. Now, what did Jesus say? At Herod's temple, he has just worked massive miracles and there's still unbelief in the space because they're struggling to believe all of this. And he says to them, destroy this temple because he knew they were so hateful of him taking away their crowd, taking away their religious adherence and saying that he was king. And so they wanted to kill him and they had occasion because they also saw he was a threat to Rome. So Rome and religion have come together and he knows they're going to kill him and he understands that that's his father's plan. And he announces to all of them in Herod's temple, destroy this temple and I will build it again. Hallelujah. They thought he was talking about the temple that cost 46 years of building, but he probably did something like this, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it pointing at himself but they never thought he was talking about himself they thought he was talking about brick and mortar they didn't realize that from nearly 400 years prior God no longer lived in temples made by men's hands say where is the house that you will build me to Solomon or to David I'm not going to live in something you built for me I will live in what I build for myself the best house you can live in is the one you build for yourself unless you are ignorant before you built like the Israelites. That's why they lived in houses they did not build. Because they didn't have exposure enough to build a nice house. You get it? If I, if I was going to live in Malibu or Beverly Hills, I don't want to build my own house. I need somebody who for generations has had billions of dollars and has exposure. But build it for me. When you finish building, I will come and inherit it. Because I will build to the level of my exposure. Your exposure is more than mine. Hallelujah. You will, build, you will live in houses you did not buy. You live in houses you did not build. Hallelujah. You reap harvest you did not sow. Glory to God. Let me end it. And so here is, here is, um, here is, good Lord, this old age. Where was I? Uh -huh. So he says, I will build it up in three days. God had left brick and mortar. The lesson of COVID. The house of God is the body of man. Know ye not that you are the temple of God. He said, I will build it again. And what does Haggai the prophet say about the temple? He says, the glory of the former house or the glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former house. You know why? The former house was just one 
person in whom the Godhead, the creator life, abode. Hallelujah. But by the time he has allowed them to kill his humanity, by substitution he has redeemed them and instead of having only one house, he'll have a plurality of houses. When Simon Peter talks about it, he calls us lively stones and describes Jesus Christ as the head of the stones and that we are all jointly fitted together to become the habitation of not just the glory of God in one man, but the glory of God in a whole community of men, a whole society of men, a whole civilization of men, so that the glory of God one will chase a thousand, two will chase thousand and the quantum of glory will start to proceed towards its infiniteness that there's nothing on earth none of the kings or governments of the earth will be able to stand at the church that has come to the knowledge of the glory of God and the fact that they carry creator life hallelujah somebody so what is he saying it puts me in uh, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 11 and I'm rounding up right here Ecclesiastes 9 and 11 the Bible says that I have come back from my wanderings uh, and I have discovered in all of my surgeon uh, that the race is not to the swift. In other words, you don't have to be swift to win. Uh, you just need to be favored uh, by a God who loves you when you're not lovable. Nor is the battle to the strong. Uh, meaning that you don't have to be strong in might uh, in order to win the war. Uh, nor does bread go to men of understanding. Uh, nor riches uh, to men of wisdom. Uh, nor favor to men of skill. Uh, but time, that's the Hebrew word ed and chance that's the Hebrew word paga ah, happened to them all that word happened is the Hebrew word kara that means there's a coincidence of three things God orchestrates happenings, occurrences and events in your life to present you opportunities at the right time that if you recognize it properly you'll be able to seize the opportunity in the event and you will move to victory in the race victory in the war riches and of course also bread and you will walk around on this earth as one favored by God so what I mean to tell you then my friends is that in three days something is going to happen in your life certainly I hope that in three 24-hour periods you will receive what you're going to receive. And I believe there are at least five people here that your life will change in three days. But that's not my subject. My concept of days is different from the 24 hours because there is a, a period of creation in which God created. So Adam sees the earth. It appears, or rather Moses sees the earth. It appears to him to be barren, empty, and void. It only appears so because it has a veil of darkness. And Moses, having discovered it, God then steps on the scene and he clears his throat and he says, let there be light. And all of a sudden, the earth is clear for Moses to see what is about to happen because if he didn't clear the earth with light, it would happen and Moses would not see it. But God is showing Moses a pattern for how he deals with man. Can I get a witness from somebody? And the first thing he does is he separates the light from the darkness and he calls the light day and the evening he calls night. Hallelujah. The darkness, he calls that and he says the evening and the morning were the first day. Please understand uh, that your day always begins in darkness. That's why the Hebrews celebrate Sabbath uh, at 6 p.m. on Friday night all the way to 6 p.m. on Saturday night from sunset to sunset. That means before you get a beautiful day, you're going to have a dark night. 
And if you don't respect the power of a dark night to precede the brightness of a new day, then you have not understood that weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes delightfully so in the morning. Please give me a witness, somebody. And that first day, we understand that it could not have been a 24-hour day. It was a period of darkness that could have lasted zillions of years. And a period of light that followed. But both ended. Darkness has an expiration time. Darkness will not last forever in your life. Darkness will not prevail over the light. Light will always prevail over the darkness. And so put that away. The first day was not a 24-hour period. The second day, he separated the waters from the waters. And by this, he created a firmament. And the evening and the morning were also the second day. It was not 24 hours. Why do we say it was not 24 hours? Because the fourth day uh, was when he created the sun, the moon, and the stars. And uh, what is the sun, moon, and stars in relation to the earth? It is a time clock that measures time in 60 seconds to a minute, 60 minutes to an hour, 24 hours to a day, which is one complete revolution of the earth around its own axis as it progresses in an oval circulatory motion in 365 days around the sun. And this is where you get time as we understand it. It's not the only metrics for time, but it is a measure of time that we understand. Hallelujah to God. Please stay with me. And so not till the fourth day did we have 24 hours. That means that by the time we get to the third day and God separates the land from the waters and gives them their boundaries we now have had three periods of darkness and we are in the third period of light hallelujah now one of the greek or the hebrew words don't go there yet please don't go there yet you're not my, you're not in my rhythm uh, don't please don't go there yet uh, one of the things you must understand is that one of the hebrew words for light or for time rather is the word yum and yam means daylight. It means time considered as day. So when you hear the psalmist say, this is the day that the Lord has made, we shall rejoice and be glad in it. What he's saying, if you go back two verses, is simply this, that the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 23, and he now says, this is the day. That means this is the time. This is the time perceived as a day. No more night, but day. That the Lord has made, we shall rejoice and be glad in it. Look at somebody, tell them your day is coming. Yeah, look at somebody tell them I've had my night, uh, but I can sense that my day is coming. I have not been able to see my way out. I can't see my way over. I can't see my way through. I can't see my way into my new day, but I know that night has lasted as long as it's going to last. And any moment from now, the sun of righteousness is going to rise on my horizon and I'll have daylight when I can see how, when I can see who's going to do it, when I can see where I can see who with and I can see the target he said it this way in Psalm 30 and verse 5 weeping will endure for a night but shout at somebody tell them light is coming light is coming you're going to see how to pay the mortgage you're going to see how to buy the house you're going to see how to educate yourself to another level you're going to see how to move from scarcity to, to, to survival how to move from survival to sustainability how to move from sustainability to success how to move from success to 
to succession. How to move from succession to supervision. Am I talking to somebody? And so what happens now is there's light perceived as a new day. But it always comes after a long night. And night is always darkest just before dawn. So the hotter the night gets, the darker the night gets, the closer you are to your new dawn. I can see it now. I never would have thought the BTDJ would ask me to take premier stage on Friday night, the biggest night of the summit, and ask a bush boy of Ijebuang Sesti or Malegos and say, speak. And I didn't get ready when I heard. I've been getting ready for 30 years. So I always knew that an opportunity would come. Cut a long story short. They, like you're standing now, that's how they were standing for at least 50 minutes. When we got done with it, people that, I don't want to mention their names, were weeping and crying. When I tried to walk out of the place, I couldn't walk because everybody was glorifying the creator life inside the human body. When I got to the airport, the mall, the hotel, African-Americans swamped us. I went on and on and on and on. We, we got to the airport and we couldn't walk but two, three steps without being swamped. I said, look at what God used one man to do for another man. Some people get their breakthrough when they're 35. Others get theirs when they're 60. You're never too old for your breakthrough. Weeping will endure for the night. But your day is coming. They may laugh at you and look at you funny, but your day is coming. You may be broke, busted, and disgusted for a while, but your day is coming. You were so hard hit by calamity and catastrophe that you had to dress up and look up and high up because you were feeling real bad, but you didn't want anybody to know what you're going through. But now it's so bad that everybody knows what you've been going through and your night is on. But baby, I want to tell you something. Your night is not going to last forever. Darkness always has an expiration date to it. And I want to prophesy to somebody that your expiration date on darkness is very nearby. So this is how you mark it. You've had a period of darkness and then shoo, you had a period of light. And it lasted for a while, then another period of darkness. Most Joseph went into the pit, but he came out. Entered another period of darkness, but he came up. Entered another period of darkness in the prison, but he came out. And this time, he would never go back into darkness. So you need to look back over your life and know your dark seasons. And know the light season that came after it. And then you recognize another darkness has come. But remember, his mercies are new every morning. His compassions, every morning, they fail not. After night, there must be light. After darkness, there must be a new day. And so at now is time perceived as a window of opportunity. It's all over the Hebrew. Wherever you see the term appointed time or set time or by this time next year, it's the word et. When you put et and yum together, friends, something's about to happen in your life. Never give up in the dark. The light will come and you'll see. I can now see with the kind of people that are calling me up. I got an invitation to be the inaugural speaker for the Africa American Chamber National prayer, prayer breakfast. 
They have the National Prayer Breakfast. They have the Nigeria American Prayer. But now they have this one. Not just that. This bush boy, and I'm not perfect. I'm not swift. <laughs> I'm not the strongest. I'm not the best. They said, please come and address us at the House of Lords. I said, me? <laughs> See, there's favor coming on you because of time, chance, and events. God, God somebody says, D -d -d -is, is it that time happens to me? Or is it that uh, opportunity happens to me? Or is it that uh, the happenings happen? Let me tell you about God. If it is time that needs to be manipulated, he will manipulate it. He's the master of time. He can make the sun stand still and the moon stand still and give Joshua extra time. If it's events, he can manipulate the events so that the events happen to you not at the wrong time. So he prevents the invitation until you're ready. Because if you get the invitation now, you will not perform. So he holds it back and gives you opportunities that resist you so that your resistance develops your spiritual muscularity. You get it? Yeah? You got your doctrine all messed up. And so there's some things he can't give you yet. So what he does is he organizes the events and the circumstances of your life that will make you change your doctrine. Causes your steps to be ordered in the right way so that you are at the right place at the right time. He holds back the famine and says, famine don't come yet because Joseph, if I get you there and the Pharaoh has not had his dream before you get there, you get there prematurely. That's why the butler forgot Joseph. Because Pharaoh hadn't had the dream because the famine was not yet aligned. Hallelujah. And if he got there before the famine came, his brothers would not have come to see him. Yes, and he did not have the management skill yet to run Potiphar's house. How much more Pharaoh's house, how much more the whole world. So God had to wait for everything to align. Moses, if Joseph needed a process. Pharaoh needed a process. His brothers needed a process. His father had given up on the Abrahamic call. When he heard from his sons that Joseph is still alive and he's the Pharaoh. The kingdom came back to him. The promise of God renewed in his heart. He said, oh yeah, let's go. And he went back to reunite with his son. Hallelujah. You understand? So God manipulates all. And you must just believe him even when you can't trace him. Trust him. Trust him. He's still working on your destiny. So don't give up on your destiny and start chasing all these fringe things on the periphery of God's plan. Go to the bullseye. I hope somebody's listening to me. Shout at two people, it's going to happen. That means you must endure and enjoy the night in the pit, uh, the night in the journey to Potiphar's house. You must enjoy the process that raises you up in Potiphar's house. And you must also enjoy the false accusation. I was sitting across a man of God. He said, Apostle Paul, you must learn to enjoy persecution. I said, uh, uh, excuse me, sir. Did you say enjoy or endure? He said, I, I know how to speak English. I said, enjoy it. Enjoy it. I did not used to enjoy it before, but now I enjoy persecution. What he was trying to communicate to me is that persecution is indication that God has given you approval. We say, but I don't deserve it. You deserve it. The reason why they're persecuting you, they have a better eye on your purpose and your promise than you do. You don't believe what they can see because you've been through so much humiliation in your life that you don't believe in you anymore. You don't believe in who is in you. As a result, you degrade yourself. 
Whereas God can never degrade you. He sees you on the same level as his son. And once you can catch that and believe it, you are going to go into the ride of your life. It's going to be awesome. Hallelujah. So when he said, I will build it in three days, he was dealing with Haggai 2 verse 9. Though it spoke to that time, it also spoke to the new temple. The temple is never a building. You are a singular temple. We are the greatness of the more glorious temple. Can you imagine? 5,000 creator life inhabited members of House on the Rock London taking over the O2 for small beginnings. Can you imagine what will happen? When you get properly indoctrinated in Christ in you, the hope of glory, authentic Pauline New Testament. This was the heart of Paul's mystery that he unveiled to the church, to Gentiles for that matter. And it can happen. Whether you're the kind of preacher who shouts like I do or doesn't think like I do or thinks like I do, whatever your style is, that's not what matters. Create your life. Create Some guys will whisper but the creator life that issues will change nations. Others will shout, and it will reach the people who like the shout. The one who whistles reach the people who don't like, you know, there's some people who put their hand in their pocket, and that's how they worship. And when they're in revival, they're like this. When we're in revival, we're, you understand what I'm saying? But God has all shades, all colors. There's so many keys on one keyboard. It's the diversity of God. The important thing is be aware that the creator life is in you. And watch this now. In three days. If you look back on your life, you've been through at least one or two seasons of darkness followed by great light. You must not get past the third period of darkness without a certain knowing that by your third season of daylight, you're entering the promises of God and its fulfillment. For me, this is a word God gave house on the rock. That within three days, and that will mean different things to different people, it will mean something to all of us as a whole. House on the rock has been through three major seasons of darkness. And we're just about to come into our third season of light. It was not a 24 hour period. It's taken 30 years to get there. And you're about to enter something. It's a word for this house. If you are house on the rock, this is your word. It's not exclusive to house on the rock, but I believe every church has its governing word for each season of its sojourn, its responsibility. Glory to God. When Joseph came out of that third season of darkness, he never went back to darkness again. Neither did his brothers. In fact, he came to light for them to enjoy 30 clear years of a favor who favored Joseph and therefore blessed them. So they were lifted up to the same level as Joseph. They lived in Goshen as he lived in Goshen. Until a Pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph. But even that darkness would not last forever. Moses came. It was a day of light. Joshua came. A day of great light. Track your seasons so you know which day you are in. Don't let the third day end without you maximizing it. The third day belongs to resurrection, restoration, God replenishing you, restoring you, refueling you, refreshing and reviving you. That's going to happen. Lift up your hands. Let's pray. Light is coming. We're going to pray the simplest prayer 
In Pauline fashion, it would have been said this way. May God grant you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of the Son of God. So that the glorious light of the gospel may shine in your hearts in the face of Jesus Christ. That's Pauline. God says it this way. Let there be light in my darkness. Wherever there's something you don't understand, a promise that you don't understand why it's not fulfilled, why, I hope I'm not going to offend anybody, why your millions haven't showed up yet. This is not for everybody. For others, why your sufficiency hasn't showed up yet. Wherever there's darkness in your life, command the light. You have the same authority as Christ. He was the one who commanded the light to shine in the darkness. And it did. On the count of three, I want you to get ready. You're going to shout your loudest shout. Let there be light all over my life. One, two, three. Say it again. One, two, three. Before we say it again, how many of you have been through a damning situation in the last three years, somewhere in the last three years, that has really set a veil of darkness where you've lost dream, lost passion, lost vision, lost hope, even lost faith? God wants to give it all back to you. In response, in response to your cry for light, he will move you into the light. Hallelujah. And you will see clearly what he's got in his hands waiting for you to have. One, two, three. Now release your prayer language and pray in the spirit for just two minutes. Some of you have challenges organizing your organization. Uh, hiring your human resource, employing your business developers and your business development team. Because you have, you have the product, you have the commodity, you have the industry, but you don't know how to turn it into a marketplace endeavor that you can convert into wealth and currency. You are of high value and you're beginning to understand your value, but you don't know how to take it to the Bureau de Change. Because when God blesses you, he blesses you in spiritual things. You must have the conversion capacity to take the spiritual things and make them material, make them natural. Hallelujah to God. You have 10 more seconds. Just 10 more seconds. In Jesus' name. Now listen. Listen. By faith, we understand that the worlds, that's the physicality, were framed by the word of God. He's not talking about the Bible because there was no Bible at that time. He's talking about the spoken word of God from God. Yeah. Hallelujah. So that the things which do appear, that's what you can touch, were not made by things that are visible. Hallelujah. So on earth, we give the church money. But in giving the church a sacrificial sum, you are giving the church money to do God's work, but in doing so, you're giving God your faith. Faith is not visible. And when God gives you in return for your faith, because you gave a sacrificial sum to your local church to do the work of God, God does not respond by giving you money. Church, get it. Get it. Otherwise, you will be poor. 
And God doesn't want you poor. He wants you to have sufficiency for your goals, your God-given dreams, and your vision. That's how I live. Hear me carefully. What will God pour out of heaven? Faith. Yes. Hope. Mm -hmm. Charisma. Mm -hmm. The ordering of your steps. Mm -hmm. Hallelujah. He'll put a fragrance on you that will cause man to like you. He'll put you in the right place at the right time. He'll manipulate things in the invisible world. Mm -hmm. Hallelujah. Yes so that you'll be at the right place at the right time with the right confidence because of the right charis on your life, that's charisma, so that you have a tongue and utterance that cannot be gainsaid or, 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 or limited. And when you now speak, then they like you. And they even say to you, write your own job description and choose your salary. You hear what I'm saying? He'll make people a long way off notice you just by reading your resume and he was with you writing it when you were writing it. That's why he gave you the knowledge yes. of witty inventions, but he didn't give you money. And then Boaz says, who's that person over there? Uh -huh. And you will become the beneficiary of a conversation that you are not privy to, that would change your life on earth. Because God had a conversation in heaven that has a corresponding conversation here on earth that will affect your destiny. Yes, sir. Your Boaz will locate you. Yes. Oh, that amen sounds like London. I said, your Boaz will locate you. I've never seen God give me money. He just increased my talent, my awareness of the talent, increased my favor level, increased my grace level, increased my ordering of, the ordering of my steps, and, and influenced my times and my seasons. So I was at the right place with the right attitude at the right time. There was one guy, I wanted to give him the length of my mother's lip. She's Jamaican. But when I got there, a calm came on me and I blessed him. And he blessed me in a way I can't explain. It's beyond explanation. So if you get to the right place with the wrong attitude, you have a problem. Slap your neighbor or push him and say, be a Christian. Let your speech be seasoned with salt and much grace. God showed me that, that Paul, you're using the wrong weapons. Because I'm, I'm naturally a warrior. Ask my brothers. I'm a warrior by nature. Uh, 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 the way I negotiate is fight. The way I love is fight. Everything I do is fight. Jakadi. You understand? Yeah, but God's showing me your weapons are not meant to be carnal because you wrestle not against flesh and blood. Love who you want to teach a lesson. Your goodness will give them a different perception of you. Be good to them the way I've been good to you. Treat them the way I treat you. You can't love them with the love of Christ unless you've been loved by Christ experientially. That's your greatest weapon, the love of God. You understand? Yeah. So, in a few moments, we're going to worship through giving. Don't expect money back, but expect favor to come upon you. Expect time and chance to come upon you. You're not the swiftest, but something's going to make the swift slow down and cause you to speed up. Hallelujah. And you won't be the fastest on, on the course, but you'll get there first. They'll shut the door to everybody else. He said, Lazarus, come forth. There were probably a thousand Lazaruses in Abraham's bosom. Not one of them responded and he did not use a surname. Only the Lazarus he called came forth. God told me to tell you, he wants you. He wants you back. He wants you back. I remember 30... 34 years ago, our late dad was lying in a casket in our living room. And I wasn't a mature man. I still had a lot of questions for him. 
Everything in me wanted to cry out loud, Daddy, get up now. We haven't finished talking. So I wanted my daddy back. When Jesus stood at the tomb as creator God and called Lazarus back, it was because he wanted him back. He wanted continued fellowship with him on this sod. He wanted to still show him creator life and give him the privilege of, of knowing intimately what it is to go to Hades, the good side of Hades, and to be called back by his God and friend. God wants you back. He wants you back. He misses his time with you. He misses the glint in your eye when he shows you the glory of his nature, the power of his personality. He wants you back. He wants to show you his goodness. He's not going to beat you. He's not going to beat you. Except he has to. He wants to love on you. He wants to show you his goodness and you don't have to do anything to earn it. Except believe that he wants you. And sometimes he won't wait for you to believe. He'll bless you till you believe. He wants you back. Second thing we're going to pray for. God, what were you hoping for when you called me? What did you want from my life? Because you can get to the top of your ladder and have climbed the wrong ladder. You can get to the end of your race and have run the wrong race. You don't want to spend your energy, not at 60, not at 50, not at 40, especially those of you who have the benefit of us in your life. Don't make the mistakes we made. We're going to ask God, let your light shine in my career path that I will not take another path. God, show me my path. I want precision. I want exactness. God's church is meant to be the house of prayer. And Pauline prayer is the only way to pray correctly. Paul delineated in Philemon chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 3. It's Pauline prayer. That's new covenant prayer. I pray the Lord's Prayer, but I reconcile it to the New Testament because when he gave the Lord's Prayer, he was under the old covenant. So, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Correct. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Half correct. Because the kingdom has already come and his will has already been done. It was wrapped into three days from all eternity, past and future, death, burial and resurrection. The will has been done. It's now for us to enter that will and bring its manifestation here. Number three, give us this day our daily bread. He's already given us the bread. Eat it. That's another lesson for another time. But Pauline prayer prays from the premise of victory, not for victory. We don't pray for victory. We already have it. So what we need to have is the light to recognize that. Otherwise, we're operating in the old covenant. Hallelujah. You are already victorious. You are more than a conqueror. That means somebody else conquered and gave you the spoils. That's what more than a conqueror means in the Greek there. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lift your, lift your hands. And say, Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father. The one who is above. Yet inside me. I declare over my life. And over my path. Of surgeon on this earth everything that you were hoping for when you brought me into new creation and all things passed away and all things have become new 
shed light on my path that I will know what I'm meant to do with my life what you were hoping for when you called me into the new creation and set me a light a blaze here on this earth make it clearly known to me on the tables of my heart don't only etch it engrave it in the name of Jesus Christ now ask the Lord in your own language what were you hoping for when you called me what is the hope of your calling upon my life frame me hedge me into it in fact take two hands of one person and pray for that person that the light of God's glory the light of God's principle and purpose will shine into their hearts to reveal to them what God was hoping for when he called them exactly what he was hoping for when he called them that's what we want otherwise the secularity of our world will lead you down a different path and sometimes the call of God leads you to do the impossible that at first sight in vision of what God has for you you would shrink you would be apprehensive because it looks like too much for you but the grace of God is more than sufficient for you God's grace will help you to do what grace sets as a target that you could not do by yourself and therefore in your exasperation you summon grace and grace comes to help you accomplish what you could not accomplish by yourself. Paul said I am what I am by the grace of God. I labored more abundantly than all the others but it was not me that labored but it was the grace of God that labored in me. I would have taken the path of architecture. The building houses rather than building human lives. And building understanding in the heart of man to be able to receive the fullness of the Godhead. I would have taken a road down the path of drug addictions and substance abuse. And ultimately to the point of suicide had it not been that God shed light on the hope of his calling upon my life. Otherwise I would have lived arbitrarily, made a success out of nothing. God is calling you to the next level of his purpose and plan for your life. He will light up your passion, your talents, your gifts, so that you will understand your calling, so that your gifts will no longer be arbitrary or useless. But your passion will coincide with your gift set, your skill set, your talent set. And you'll unleash and unlock a passion for purpose. The only place where you can find real fulfillment in doing what God created you for. A Ferrari is a hopeless element as a seafaring boat. A speedboat is hopeless on the M1. But when you find your element, you will excel. You will excel, you will exceed the expectations of those who sired you. Hallelujah to God. Hallelujah to God. There are two things we're going to pray about. You may release your neighbor's hands for a moment. There are two things we're going to pray about in one breath. The riches of the glory of God's inheritance in the saints. When God 
planted the earth, Genesis 1.1, he put treasure inside the planet. Then the calamity of heaven's rebellion against God, in part, caused a calamity to happen on the earth, which brought a veil of darkness on the treasure trove in the planet. God likens us to the planet after the calamity had happened. Earth's calamity was the fall of Lucifer. Adam's calamity or humanity's calamity was the fall of Adam. And because of Adam's fall, the treasure in us was veiled so that we carry the treasure but we are unaware of it. That's why we need light. You are the treasure trove of God himself in earthen vessels. And light must come for you to see the potential and then you call it forth. I spend a lot of time calling out of me what I sense God has put in me. Hallelujah. When I was a corporal, I said, General, come out. Hallelujah. When I was a nobody, I said, Somebody, come forth. You've got to get a sense of what's inside you so you can call it forth. It will respond to you. Hallelujah. You get it? Now the riches of God's glory are in you. You have this treasure in your earthly trove. You've got to release it. How do you release it? The light of the gospel must reach your understanding. Not the light of Moses' law. Not the light of the law of sin and death. Not the light of divine sentence that will cripple you. But the light of the law of the spirit of life in Christ. It will unlock and unveil the treasure trove you carry. Otherwise that treasure trove remains there. Until God calls it out, it cannot come out. You are God's mouthpiece. That's the first thing you're going to pray about. Second thing you're going to pray about is the exceeding greatness of his power toward them who believe. When Jesus went down, he went down with the sin of over 10 billion people. There was no reason for him to come up. But the power of resurrection brought him out of all of that and in the process brought you out also. So that you are raised together to sit together with him in heavenly places in Christ. Do you get it? i give you an example. The experience costs us an awful lot of money. It's reaching nearly a billion naira. Last year it was almost there. By the stroke of divine creativity, he put the resources in our hands, free from two major multinationals in the country. The MDs just happened to call me up and I spoke to one, he said, go to these other two. Two of them came through and one singular guy came through and it covered our bill. I was flying on a plane the other day and one of my businessmen was with me and we were talking and I just knew this was an opportunity. And I said, the experience is on. Are you gonna partner with us in it? He said, how much does it cost? I said, it won't cost less than a million dollars. He said, count me in for half. I didn't smile. I looked at him like this and I said, thank you. Because if I smile too much, you might get the wrong idea. God will pay for what he shows you. If he gave you the vision, he will always give you provision. Pro means for. He never gives you vision without providing the for vision, the provision. You understand? So the issue is hope of his calling. What did he call you to? If you get that right, provision will never be your problem. It will be your challenge, but not a problem. Then the power 
The exceeding power. He's never going to give you enough power to jump four feet if the target is four feet. He'll give you the power for more than four feet. Because he always leaves leftover. When he turned water into wine, you know the story? He arrives at the party. They're all kind of uh, bros. And then five minutes later, they say, the wine is finished. And they tell Jesus, they said, my son, tell him he'll fix it. He said, mom, I've told you before, it's not yet my time. You know, this mom was not going to take no for an answer. She said, whatever he tells you to do, do. In other words, son, do what you have to do. You understand? He said, go and fill six water pots. I said, we asked for wine, you are asking us for water. They asked for booze. He's giving them water. They fill the water. He said, take it to the chief of the priest and pour it out. As they poured it out was when it turned from water to wine. Creator life. What I'm trying to say to you is that the exceeding greatness of his power is always above what you think. When he did that miracle, there was 1,200 plus 750 milliliter bottles of wine left over. Why do you think he made excess? He was giving the young couple a business. The boy gave five loaves and two fish, you remember? Of what was left over, it was 12 baskets about this high that saliva nor teeth did not touch. Why do you think he gave excess? He was paying back the boy. The boy started a cafe. Corner shop. <laughs> you understand? God will always leave you excess. That's why I looked at the guy and said with a very stern face, thank you. Because I don't only need the resource for this year's experience. I need the one for next year. And next year, if God helps us, we want to go to three cities at the same time. Three hours in New York, three hours in London, where there are multiple performances going on and aired synergistically or synchronized across the planet. You understand? I don't know what God wants to do with you in particular and in the general, but you need to find out what it is. And when you see how lofty it is, you must have access to the understanding that the power to make it happen is available. Otherwise, you will always settle for the natural instead of operating in the supernatural. Lift your hands and ask God to show you the exceeding greatness of his power. When Joseph saw his brothers and his father, and then Benjamin, his only full-blooded brother, show up in Egypt in the time of his rise. He understood that God's power was exceeding because he knew that he would never see them again. But instead, God showed him, my power goes beyond what you know. God wants to do things that will leave you in perpetual awe. And that's why you came here this particular Sunday. I want you to pray in your heavenly language. Pray in your understanding. Just for two minutes. It's not in much speaking. It's in earnest speaking.
feel the anointing of God responding to your prayer. I see you lifted up into a place where you can receive, where you are closer in your understanding and faith to receive. What you were hoping for in the dark, now you will hope for it in light. That's the difference between faith and hope. God is up to something. The riches of the glory of his inheritance in you. God wants a, a forest of oak trees. So he puts in you one acorn. Because he's hoping for the oak trees. God wants the kingdom of heaven. Ruling and reigning over the kings of earth. That's why he put the kingdom in your heart. Please begin to round up your prayer. We're going to pray the last prayer. Alvin. Reach into. In Jesus' name, last prayer. Gosh, I don't know. The clock moves so fast in London. Moses said, show me your glory. And he didn't know what God was about to do. I thought he had seen the glory. God said, you can't see my glory and live. So cleft in the rock, I put you there. This is the second time I'm teaching you this. Because it takes twice to become faith. Thank you. It takes twice to thank you. It takes twice to become faith. And I'll hide you in the cleft. And what I'm going to show you, your five senses cannot pick it up. So I'm going to cover your five senses, starts with the eyes, and then I will stand in front of you and proclaim the name of the Lord. I'll proclaim my goodness to you and infuse you. And then when I've shown you my, my rare glory, I will pass by. We know that when he had done that, Moses comes out of the cleft and he starts writing. Why? Because he was transported from many hundreds of years, in fact, millions of years, in time, backwards to the glory of creation where he would see God at his highest expression this far prior to Christ. Do you understand? And that's when Moses started writing and he would see the unlocking of the earth's bowels to bring out all of this mammoth ingenuity in divine creation. You get it? When you ask God, show me your glory, God is not going to show you the rear. He's going to show you the front. He's going to show you what John saw. He's going to show you the future and how that's going to happen in your life. I want you to ask God, show me your glory in my future. Because when he showed him the glory of the past, he was indicating to him how the future happens. In other words, God speaks to the earthen vessel and unlocks the treasure in. Now show me the future. My prayer for me, Father, I ask that you show me the glory that I will not relent in pressing forward and onward to the mark of the prize of the high calling of Jehovah in Jesus Christ. That I will forget all those things which are behind and press forward to the things which are in front till I reach the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Do it for your namesake that the glory of your presence will cover this earth as the waters cover the sea. Show me your glory. I don't only want to hear your voice. Thank you. I don't only want to, to see the enlivenment of the scripture. I want to see your glory.
Show me your glory. Make that your prayer. God wants, wants to show you his glory in your career path. He wants to show you his glory in your economy. He wants, you to show, wants to show you his glory in your family. He wants to take the predicament and the plight that's going on somewhere in your house and turn it into his opportunity for the revelation of his glorious power doing what man called impossible, what doctors said cannot be fixed. Show me your glory. In Jesus' mighty name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lift your two hands. Lift your two hands. Heavenly Father, we pray for House on the Rock and its members, friends, and guests in particular that your glory will take advantage of the ebbing away of the season of darkness. And that weeping has lasted long enough and we open the gates. We command the two-leaf doors to open and the everlasting doors to lift up their heads and King of glory in the brightness of the light of your shining. Welcome to the new day that you bring to enliven your people and bring them into the fulfillment of their promise. In the name of Jesus Christ, let their eye be single for the light of the glory of the gospel and do your pleasure in every life. And I declare the third daylight will not come until they have dawned in the new era of your greatest blessing as you begin the closure of the age and prepare us for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Father, we release creator life that every trial they pass through as persons or as people will merely be the tearing away of the flesh, the decrease of humanity to increase your deity, your de divinity in them. We thank you, our God, that the miraculous will break out across various pockets in this house till it's eventually more than pockets, till it's a wide swath sweeping every member of this household, every affiliate, everybody in the diaspora of House on the Rock London into the glory of your power and presence at work in their work here on earth. Father, if there's any sick, let them go away whole. If there's any broken in their economy, let their sufficiency return and be restored to them. If there's anybody who has never seen the miracle of the coincidence of time and chance, this week, do things that evidence you are in control of their times. And Father, we now release the apostolic word of set time. We declare that before the 12th of May or the 14th of May, 2024, all who have heard and proceed to meditate on this word according to scripture, they will enter into the set time for proper alignment with their journey in this planet towards their course. In other words, Father, the purpose for which you called Abraham, in like manner, the purpose for which you called each one of them, they will fully and properly align supernaturally and enter the sequence of miracle after miracle. Positive divine eventuality after every positive eventuality. That the occurrence of happenings will cause them to rise. So that like Ruth came out of scarcity into survival, out of survival, into sustainability, out of sustainability, into success, where she started with nearly nothing and ultimately owned the field that she was a laborer in. That your people will come out of being less but now being more and having more than enough. I declare you come into an uncommon amount of wealth in the name of Jesus Christ. That amen sounds too weak. Amen.
I said that amen sounds too weak. I said that amen sounds too weak. I had just finished capsuling my thoughts and I got a call from Del York, New York last night. And he said, would you like to be on our board? I said, I need to do the diligence to make sure that I'm not getting into anything. By the time I did the diligence, I, I said, I will call at an opportune time to let you know I will gladly accept a non-executive director's position on your board. That means I don't really have to do the work. I just have to advise from time to time. And free flights, free ticket, free dividends. Hey, pastor. God is going to redefine your profession so that you're not merely doing things within the confines of your traditional professional job description. You are bigger than that. God is bigger than pastor. He's bigger than apostle. You are wider than that. You're not helping me. When I think of ladies like Ibuka Awoshika, I see about four or five women here entering space like that where they will summon you to be board members of multinationals. So go and get yourself ready so that by the time the first opportunity comes, you are ready for it. Not that you have to wait for a second opportunity. Go to school. Go to that one in Paris. Go to the one here in London. Go to the best business school you can and do all those three-day courses, three-week courses, six-month courses. If you have to do an MBA, do it so that when they call you, you are ready. When they called Joseph, he was ready. He said, please, I want to fast 21 days. He said, this is the meaning of your dream. One, two, three, finish. And he was appointed. You understand? I see at least five women, five women, whether you're watching online or in situ, you're going to the boardroom. And you never thought of yourself as a board person. I'm telling you now, you are a boardroom person also, apart from what you do. They're going to call you to the board. When they call you, call me. I want to know. Hallelujah. I don't need your money. I don't want it, but I want to know. Hallelujah. And when you get there, encourage other women to go to the board. Men, when you see women going to the board, you should be going to the chair. You understand? You should be going to the chair. Prepare yourself for it. Prepare yourself. And they'll start you out with lesser boards sometimes. Sometimes they will jump you. Joseph didn't go through lesser boards. Only Potiphar's house and the prison house. Then from there, straight Get yourself ready. Don't only be theological or doctrinal preachers. You must understand markets and industry. Otherwise, how do you pastor people in industry and in the markets? You must. I see you looking at your clock, so. I'll see you in three years. <laughs> God is good. We hope you've enjoyed this uplifting sermon from House on the Rock Church, the London Lighthouse. We hope you've been informed and inspired. Join us for services every Wednesday and Sunday. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at HOTR London. Also, live stream our services on YouTube at HOTR London. For more information, visit our website on hotr.org.uk.